Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week, and I'm super excited about it, is Cheryl Leahy, who I've known for a long time and have admired for a long time. She's currently the executive vice president of Animal Outlook, which, of course, used to be known as Compassion Over Killing, and she was formerly its general counsel. And usually, of course, on this podcast, we discuss ongoing cases, but in this week's episode, we're going to be discussing a case that actually has already settled. It involves the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, ritual slaughter, the largest lamb slaughterhouse in the country, and crucially, it involves the False Claims Act. I think that's really the thing about it that is the most interesting. And I've all, I and many other people have often thought that the False Claims Act has enormous potential for animal lawyers. So I know that Cheryl hopes that this case will serve as a model for lawyers interested in suing animal abusers and, and interested in helping animals and interested in stopping fraud on the government and interested in making a lot of money. There's an idea. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House. Speaking of money, Our Hen House is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces the Animal Law Podcast. It also produces the Our Hen House Podcast. If you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org donate. You can join our flock for $10 a month, or you can just make a one-time donation in any amount that you can afford. And I know these are hard times, and some people are in trouble, uh, to say the least. So this is just meant for only for those who are able. For the rest of you, feel free to listen with in good conscience, because I want everybody to hear the information that Cheryl has to offer and of all our other guests have to offer. But I think our supporters always know that they are helping to provide animal-friendly media not just to themselves, but to others who can't afford it right now for one reason or another. And we're super grateful for any support that you can offer. And if you haven't yet done so, and I know there are people who listen to this podcast who don't listen to our hen house, which I don't understand, which I know I have mentioned before, but please check it out. I co-hosted along with Jasmine Singer and uh, a few recent episodes that might be of interest uh, include episode 551 with political psychologists Christophe Daunt and Gordon Hodson about the new book they edited called Why We Love and Exploit Animals, Bridging Insights from Academia and Advocacy. Boy, that's asking the question, right? Why? Why, why, why? Another possibility, an episode I loved, uh, 552 with Antonio Franiuti of Animal Heroes, and that is an organization in Mexico, and they are doing amazing work there and making huge progress, particularly legislatively in Mexico. So you might find that of interest. Okay, now let's get to the interview. Cheryl Leahy is, of course, as I mentioned, the executive vice president of Animal Outlook. From 2006 to 2019, she was their general counsel. She works on the strategic direction of the organization as a whole, especially focusing on the use of undercover investigations as a mechanism for high-impact advocacy and on targeting large-scale abuse of anim farmed animals through proactive litigation. Her work includes challenging cruel yet standard practices forced upon farmed animals, as well as unfair industry practices such as misleading marketing of meat, milk, and eggs often found in grocery stores. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be on. I am thrilled to have you. I, this is such an amazing case to be talking about. And we usually talk about ongoing cases, but this case actually was already settled. 
but it deals with such an important statute. And I'm, I'm not sure that everybody is aware of it because it did settle. You know, there wasn't any major published decision that everybody got to see. So I'm really happy to be taking a deep dive into it because it's important for a number of reasons. And as you just mentioned before we started recording, we'd like to think of this as a potential model for other cases. So I hope people listen to it with that in mind. And the statute that we're talking about, which has always been one of my favorites, the False Claims Act, it has a lot of potential to be really important statute for animals. So I'm just really excited about talking about this. But before we get to the lawsuit, as always, uh, let's start with the facts. And see, it was Compassion Over Killing, which, and you have now changed your name to Animal Outlook, but it was Compassion Over Killing when this all started, I believe. Mm-hmm. This lawsuit started with an investigation. And I'm just curious to know, why did you choose uh, this particular location to do an investigation? Did you have a, a lawsuit in mind or was it random or, well, just tell me. <laughs> yeah, you know, we get this question a lot and it's it, it's random, right? I mean, we don't have control over the, you know, countless animal facilities that are out there. You know, we are able to get in where we're able to get in. And then as attorneys or sort of as overall strategists in the organization, we look at what we got in terms of the footage. I see this investigation's tactic as really being about, you know, raw material. What actually is happening in these slaughter plants and industrial animal ag facilities? And then it's a question of what do we do with that material? You just happen to have an investigator who happened to be able to get a job at this particular facility? Correct. And that's that's how, you know, it always is. And I think what was interesting about this facility, there's a couple of really unique elements of it. One of which was that it was the largest lamb slaughter house in the United States. One of which, I mean, and, and you know, not a, none of these are individually unique components, but I think all together they, they paint a kind of interesting story. You know, it was also a ritual slaughter establishment, so they were advertising themselves as halal. And it's also a, a facility that was supplying, was selling meat to the federal government, a couple of different agencies, one of which, the larger one, being the program that does things like the National School Lunch Program. It was a halal slaughterhouse, but they weren't selling just to places that wanted halal meat. Is that right? Correct. They were, they were, their slaughter method was halal. It wasn't like they were switching back and forth, right? I mean, what their, their position, I believe, would be that, you know, they were halal, you know, kind of morning to night. And their products were sold in mainstream outlets, uh, Walmart, that kind of that kind of outlet. And also they were selling the pelts, like the fur or leather style pelts of these animals for products like Ugg boots. So it's actually a huge company. I think it's interesting for us as Americans and kind of, let's say kind of mainstream America to think about the the lamb industry because it's not something that necessarily we encounter in a day-to-day basis, but it's actually you know, a huge industry and this company is, is a major player. So when you go in to do an investigation, are you going to specifically look for violations of the law? Is that your main focus or is it also or primarily just to show the public how awful lamb slaughter is, even if it's complying with legal requirements? Well, I think, you know, I... I kind of would would push back against the implicit dichotomy there a little bit. I think the story of what happens to animals in factory farms, slaughterhouses, is cruel to our to our kind of, you know, it's sort of a shocks the conscience type thing for us, right? As just human beings. 
And so then you add this layer of legal structure on top of it. And it's a question of what could you realistically kind of get accountability on or get some sort of you know, movement or reform or action on based on the laws that are existing. And I think from the animal's point of view, a lot of the suffering that's going on is actually, you know, standard practices. And then we also, you know, not just this investigation, but generally when we do investigations, you know, it's, it's pretty standard that the, you know, kind of more egregious cruelty or the more gratuitous cruelty is happening at these places as well. I think it's sort of one in the same. It's just, you know, there, there's really a, a, an important gray area between something that could be obviously something that the industry would come out and defend as, no, this is common, this is standard, you know, we're fine with it, despite what the public might think, you know, all the way to the side where, you know, you have your, you know, this narrative of this, you know, sort of rogue worker being incredibly violent. And I think in reality, it's, it's much more kind of jumbled than that. And it's all part of the same system. Well, one would hope that most of these undercover investigations would uncover things that are against the law, but it's it's sometimes it's hard to know what these laws require. But here, let's start off by talking about obviously the the first law that's really relevant in this case is the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. And uh, can you just tell us what what it requires, uh, particularly as so far as is relevant to what happened in this case? Yeah, the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act has an interesting history because it's really one of the very few laws at the federal or state level that directly is meant to deal with the suffering of animals, right? So we're trying to do, as animal advocates and animal lawyers, it's something we really should be looking at in depth in terms of what are its issues? How do we get it enforced? What are What is the scope of the law? What are its protections? And how can we kind of move things forward? So what's interesting about the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act is that it actually has two different ways to comply with it, like two different definitions of what is considering so-called humane, which, you know, I put in kind of air quotes because I would take issue philosophically with that concept. But, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the, you know, the legislature's attempt here to take animal suffering into account. So what they're trying to do is define a way that you can kill animals um, you know, without essentially causing suffering or unnecessary suffering. So there's there's two ways, 1902A and 1902B. So 1902A, which is the conventional slaughter method. So if you're a federally inspected livestock slaughter establishment and you're not doing ritual slaughter, you can meet this requirement by using a method where the animal is, quote, rendered insensible to pain by a single blow or gunshot or an electrical, chemical, or other means that is rapid and effective before being shackled, hoisted, thrown, cast, or cut. So what that generally means is a captive bolt pistol is is the sunny method at, you know, at the other livestock facilities that we've been to or that we've seen. Yeah, I think that's the provision that that most people listening to this are probably fairly familiar with. Yes. And I think what, you know, interestingly, I've heard people see the ritual provision as what they consider to be an exemption. It's not an exemption. And that's important to think of it as a just an alternate alternative way to meet the statutory standard. So 1902A, even though that's the one that numerically most slaughter plants are using, isn't there's no hierarchy between them in terms of whether they're one of them is exempt from the law and one of them you have to, to abide by it. These are statutory standards that everybody is required to abide by. You just pick one or the other. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm sure I have said in the past 
that ritual slaughter is exempt. And and of course, that, that doesn't make any sense because as you point out, there's a whole statutory uh, provision defining what what has to be done in order to meet that standard. Well, I think the reason people are calling it an exemption is because the way it plays out appears to be that way. But it's important, I'm sort of saying this to set up kind of the argument that we made here, because it's important to look at the statute in its plain language to realize that even though there's really interesting First Amendment law history here in terms of the you know religious law jurisdiction and the scope of that versus the federal agencies here, it still doesn't mean you can't you don't have to abide by the statute. Um, and that's sort of the, the point I'm I'm trying to make here because it's setting it up for, you know, what did we see in this case and how did we make this argument? So 1902B, this is the ritual slaughter one. The method has to be done, quote, by slaughtering in accordance with the ritual requirements of the Jewish faith or any other religious faith that prescribes a method of slaughter whereby the animal suffers, okay, this is really important, loss of consciousness by anemia of the brain caused by the simultaneous and instantaneous severance of the carotid arteries with a sharp instrument and handling in connection with such slaughtering. So that's really important because the method of killing, you know, there's a distinction there, but in order to even be, you know, I kind of, in my mind, think of it as, you know, there's a sort of a narrowing of the tunnel. You have to walk through this particular uh, type of rule structure in order to legally be slaughtering animals under U.S. law. One of these two, you have to meet them. And in order to meet 1902B, it has to be a method that uses this simultaneous and instantaneous severing of the carotid arteries. And then the consciousness loss comes from the blood loss of the brain. So that's pretty important. Now, uh, obviously, all of, as you pointed out, all of the animals in this slaughterhouse are being slaughtered according to halal pres- prescripts. But I think that people may be familiar with kosher prescriptions on stunning, but halal rules are somewhat different, I believe. And can you can you just discuss how how halal rules interact with these provisions? It's a really complicated and interesting question. And I, you know, I wish we could take a whole course on this. I mean, it's very, very interesting because it really says a lot about kind of humanity and how we deal with uncomfortable topics like killing animals, right? In terms of looking at these, these long historical rule structures from these religions. But the, the kind of nutshell version is that there is a lot of discomfort within Islamic law about the concept of stunning at all. Um, the idea originally, sort of historically, my understanding is that the idea was to use, you know, a very sharp blade, cut the knife. It's similar to kosher. And the animal would, you know, feel very little or nothing. The intersection of that with kind of the realities of industrial animal ag means that there is a school of thought in Islamic law that allows for the stunning to happen. And the key important thing from their point of view is that the stunning can't be the cause of death. My understanding is if you're using something like a head and body stunner, which is what we found in this investigation, you have a risk. And this is, this is me sort of hearing this from experts. You know, I have to caveat that I'm, I'm not, you know, an expert on this. This is sort of my understanding. Uh, the head and body stunner could, depending on the way that it's calibrated, depending on the way that the, you know, the voltage is going in, could cause death, uh, cardiac arrest. And that's, that's a problematic issue. 
What's more important from kind of a U.S. federal law point of view is that the way that the agency looks at ritual slaughter and the way that they instruct their inspectors, they say, you know, you don't have to be stunning the animal. The facility doesn't have to be stunning the animal under the ritual of 1902B. But if they are stunning them, it has to be effective. So that means they shouldn't be waking up. They shouldn't be returning to consciousness before they're bled out, basically. It's a delicate balance. I think it's an interesting kind of weird conflict almost between the laws. And I don't think it's been explored all that well. I think it's really been left to the agency to decide how they want to do this. There's some interesting history between, you know, religious authorities kind of pushing back against the agency, having too much oversight. And that's led to what the agency has called the ritual bubble. Um, and that is basically FSI is telling its inspectors not to inspect or interfere with the slaughter method itself. But that does not mean that the everything that happens up, up into that point of slaughter, before the bubble and after the bubble, that's still under those FSIS inspectors' jurisdiction, and they still should be overseeing that. So that includes the zoning, and then that includes dismemberment after the fact. So if you look at the, direction, the directives and the, and the instructions that the FSIS inspectors are given, they're actually... Um, you know, fairly involved minus that ritual bubble, that actual slaughter moment. Now, you know, they can raise questions about it, et cetera, but that's, that's the kind of accord that the agency has made with the religious authorities and how that they operate on a day-to-day basis with ritual slaughter. Yeah. And just to clarify for those who aren't familiar with it, the FSIS is the Food Safety Inspection Service, which is the federal the federal folks who are responsible for inspecting. And I, I, I you know, it, it's still a little, so what you're saying is that FSIS does do its regular inspections, but as far as the actual slaughter itself, it just defers to the religious authority and doesn't requ- necessarily inspect whether they're following one or the other of these things, either that the animal is unconscious or that the animal is killed in, in this one quick, slice to the neck. Correct. Is that right? Okay. So what I would argue is that deference is too, is too extreme, right? So essentially the, the concept of having FSIS do inspections is basically that all meat that's going into the marketplace needs to be federally inspected and doing, you know, they, they inspect at a number of points along the slaughter line there's there's a fair amount of kind of deregulation that's happened and that, that allows these slaughter plants to do a lot of their own kind of writing the book on what they think is important and stuff. But there's still these statutory requirements. And one of the core pieces of that is, you know, government oversight, government inspection of slaughter. And essentially what happens is the facility will say, okay, we're doing ritual slaughter. In this case, there's, you know, they're doing halal slaughter. Okay. So the, you know, in that case, on the FSIS inspectors are kind of backing off that moment of actual, you know, the actual cutting of the neck. And that means that the ritual certifier, which is a private, you know, entity, which does not have any over government oversight, is then the one that should step in and, you know, ensure that that's happening. But who knows when and to what degree that's happening, right? That's not something that you know, has its own oversight in any way. So it's almost like this this weird kind of <laughs> magnetic kind of opposite poles sort of thing. It's like, well, 
FSIS backs off because they're told not to oversee the slaughter method. And then the facility is saying that they've got a ritual certifier overseeing it. But if the ritual certifier isn't overseeing it, then no one's overseeing it, right? So it's like... And no one's overseeing whether the ritual certifier is overseeing it. (laughs) There's no one to check on that. There's no inquiry, right? So even if people were to see something that was a problem... There, there's really no process for them to then inquire further and address the issue, right? Yeah. So that's where an investigation like this comes in. And my argument, you know, about kind of how this should be done is that the agency should at least be ensuring that the basic statutory requirement, remember that kind of tunnel metaphor I used earlier, where it's like, you have to go through this narrow thing where this is the type of method that has to happen. And the really key piece of information for this case is there that has to be a single cut of the neck. Because remember, the language is simultaneous and instantaneous severance of the carotid arteries. In, in this case, every single time the necks were being cut, they would, they would sort of slice one side, lift the neck, lift the knife, slice the other side of the neck. And it appeared to be that that was to preserve the esophagus. Our theory on that was because they were selling these esophagus as esophaguses as dog treats, um, you know, like sell them on Amazon or whatever. Mm-hmm. We we believed that you know that's that was the motivation. We don't have confirmation that that was the motivation, but they were they were doing that two cut method on every single animal. That to me just categorically is in violation of the statute. Mm-hmm. And so, you're not making a judgment about whether this is halal or not, because that's not really your business. You're you're making a judgment about whether it's in violation of the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. Correct, correct. Because the halal law, there's a number of different rules and schools of thought, and there should be also, like, some of them talk about doing prayers beforehand, some of them talk about, there's just so many rules. I think the, the point here is to narrow in on, there is a federal statute you know, you don't get that deference. You don't get that other body, that sort of private religious authority coming in and overseeing unless and until you have met the statutory requirement. And in this case, you know, our argument was that they were not. Now, I'll, I'll just say this resolved in a settlement and a consent decree ultimately, and the facility, you know, expressly denies any wrongdoing. They don't, you know, concede that any of this was an issue. So everything I'm saying here is sort of, you know, me describing what our thinking was and what our arguments were. I just want to be clear that, you know, it's not as though a court adjudicated this through and, you know, right. established this. I understand. But there were other things as well. In, in, in addition to this rather gruesome uh, allegation regarding the way the throats were cut, there was some kind of stunning, as I understand, but, but animals were, were stunned or at least shocked repeatedly. Is that true? Yeah. So there was, there Here's the problem with the stunning. And there was repeated shock, and there was a backup stunner. There were a couple of in a couple of situations. This the additional stun caused the animal to like vomit blood. There's some pretty gruesome things. I mean, I don't know how much more gruesome you get than the, you know, the two cut method and all the blood. I mean, I, honestly, when I give talks about this, where there's a visual opportunity to see what's going on, I do a still to show how the slaughter line looks. Because you see that the animal is actually coming from the top. There's a stunner up there, the head and body stunner that I mentioned earlier. That's supposed to render them insensible. Then they drop down onto this conveyor belt where the the guy who cuts the throat is. And then they go down a short distance. Like you can see this all in one shot. 
Then there's the next person down on the line. His job is to cut the tails off. That's the first part of the dismemberment that's happening. In our footage, what we kind of argue, what we argued in our complaint is that almost 90%, it was like in the high 80% of the footage that we tallied up and looked at, we were seeing movement in those animals at the point of tail cut, right? So almost, yeah. almost 90% of the time. Wow. Which, which means, you know, I mean, there, I'm sure that there would be, if this was all really, you know, litigated out, I'm sure that there would be experts arguing that this is, um, you know, not a sign of sensibility, that maybe it's just reflexes or whatever. But I feel pretty strongly that the number of, you know, the percentage of times that we're seeing this is, you know, pretty, pretty damning. And then the other thing is, there was one instance where unrelatedly the line had to stop for some technical issue. And that meant that there was, instead of being about a minute of time, there was, let's say, a few minutes that went by between the time that the throats were cut and the time that the tails were cut. And in that case, none of those animals moved. So clearly, you know, there's yeah. a period that, you know, actually takes for that bleed out to happen. And just to be clear, that part about the tail cut is outside of the ritual bubble. There are, there are clear requirements, even in ritual establishments, that when you're dismembering the animal, like they cannot be sensible. Yeah. Well, thank God for that. I mean, yeah, that does. I, I have always heard those arguments that, yeah, of course they move around. Like animals move around for a really long time after they're dead. <laughs> but but yeah, that, that does seem to be pretty strong evidence that, well, I don't know why I'm laughing because this is like one of the most gruesome things I've, I've spoken about today. And even though we talk about gruesome things all the time. All right. So let's move on a little bit from the actual slaughter process. So the halal certification doesn't require that the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act be followed, does it? I mean, this meat could be sold as legitimately be sold as halal, even if the act was not followed. That's a totally separate process, right? Well, it's a separate sort of body of law, if you think. I mean, I kind of think of it as sort of religious law versus, you know, federal law here. But the, the determining factor of whether it can be sold is on the federal law side of things. You can't be selling let's say, uninspected meat, right? You can't be selling meat that doesn't, you know, that doesn't go through that. that okay. Stuff. So here's where the False Claims Act comes in. In order for these companies who sell to the federal government to do that legitimately, they have to be making certain representations as sort of a contract term, right? In order to be eligible to bid, in order to actually win the bids and sell these products, they have to be in compliance with certain laws. One of those laws is the FMIA, which is the Federal Meat Inspection Act. That law sort of wraps within it the compliance with the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. So the argument under the False Claims Act, which essentially is basically a mechanism that allows yeah. a person who has new, yeah, I, I do want to get into, you know, like maybe we should set up the False Claims Act a little more before we go into the specifics of how it applies here, because I'm not sure everybody is that familiar with it. And it's such an interesting statute. So can we maybe just talk a little bit about the statute in general and then how it applies to this case? Because I want people to really understand that. Sure. Let's yeah, let's do a, a quick uh, False Claims Act tutorial here. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. So basically, in you know, in the name, false claims, right? It kind of implies that this is about fraud. And that's really kind of what, what the animating idea is here. That if the government is being defrauded, um, is losing money because of some action 
within one of its transactions. A person with new information, which the, the statute calls a relator, can basically act on behalf of the government to recover that money and to resolve that that fraud for the government. They get, depending on the situation, they they can get some percentage of that if it's successful, um, which can be a significant amount. Now, the the way I kind of think about this is sort of loose parallel here is something like a derivative suit, you know, where it's like, you know, you can kind of act as the you know, you can be a shareholder and acting on behalf of the corporation for the corporation's interests. It's like that here, except with the government. So it's it's an unusual thing for animal law because we always run into the standing issues, right? And this bar is, you know, I'm not going to necessarily say it's always lower, but it's different, right? The way to, to be able to file a complaint here and get through the process, the path is pretty well defined and laid out. What you have to do is bring new information that the government agency didn't know about. And it has to show that there's a material uh, breach, basically, that's leading to loss of money, right? So in, in it's usually used in most vast majority of cases, it's used in healthcare type context. Mm. This is one of the first. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and there are people who are actually like professional relators. Like they, they kind of understand how this process goes and um, you know, can actually get a fair amount of recovery for both themselves and for the government. And if it, it is like if you've been troubled over Article 3 of the Constitution, the difficulty for animal advocates to get standing and how you have to show injury in fact, and it has to be real and it has to be imminent and it has to be all these things. To find out that there's this statute that just basically says, well, you can just take over the government standing exactly. <laughs> when exactly. you feel like it. it it's really, I, I mean, the statute has been in effect for a very long time. I think it was passed during the Civil War and has been upheld. But it really is extraordinary. All of a sudden you've got standing because the government has standing and you're kind of taking over their standing. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, there's also state level versions of it. So it's just sort of everywhere, but it's not something historically that, you know, most animal advocates, I think, or other advocacy-oriented lawyers have really kind of wrapped their head around, which, which and I do think there's a lot of potential here on the slaughter plants that sell to the federal government in particular. But here's, here's another wrinkle just in terms of getting the FCA 101 out here. The objective here is to try to get the Department of Justice to intervene on the case. And they don't intervene in most cases. It's just a fraction of cases that they do. But when they do, then they take on the kind of burden for it. And they they increase the likelihood of success of the case in a significant way. They also take on a fair amount of the risk. Like if you were to go forward with after they decline to intervene, you could be on the hook for significant costs in the case in the event that you lose. So the government can either let you just ignore you and, and let you bring this this case basically on their behalf, but not participate at all, or it can intervene and really become uh, an active participant in bringing the case. Exactly. Okay. So you wanted the government to get involved. Correct. And so now there's this other kind of interesting piece of this too, is that in order for the process to play out, which essentially gives the government time to look into this and make its decision, these cases are filed under seal. You can't talk about the fact that they're filed. You put all of your new information and all of your arguments into, you know, a big long complaint. And you give this whole sort of, you know, pile of documents over, tell the government about it. The defendant does not know that it's filed at that time. So 
these are cases where, you know, from an advocacy point of view, it's like we can still go out and, you know, release the material. We can still go to the, you know, the USDA and ask them to enforce the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act on their own, which in this case it did not do. We can do media, et cetera. But that has to all be done after the complaint is filed under seal. So that's just sort of an interesting hoop to jump through a little bit. And it makes sense because if you if you really understand why it's so valuable that the DOJ would kind of use its resources and get engaged in these cases, you know, that's that's where we that's where we have to have that secrecy. And it's just a requirement of the statute. So rather than filing your lawsuit, you go to the DOJ and and you see if they totally secretly and you see if they want to bring the lawsuit kind of well, to interview, not instead of you, but along with you. Yeah, we follow it, right? So it's, we actually, in this case, we worked with two private law firms, Elias LLC and Morgan Verkamp, and also with Public Justice. Um, it's actually a, a pretty, you know, it's a pretty big haul to put, put everything together and get the, this complaint filed. And then, and then we additionally, after the filing, you know, did all of this other stuff that we normally do with an investigation release. And then during that time, you know, the DOJ will then, you know, interview the investigator, engage in these in these arguments and make their decision ultimately. And once they intervene, they decided to intervene here. Do you do you totally lose control of the case? It's a really good question. And it, it depends entirely on like who your AUSA is and what their preference is. The bigger hurdle is getting them to intervene in the first place. Like I mentioned, it's it's a small fraction of cases in this case. In this case, we were really lucky because the the you know person who was handling it on their side, you know, was very engaged with us, very sort of interested in what the arguments were, understood you know the the big picture here, and was really willing to put a lot of kind of thought and work into it. I think that's really really important, especially because of the novelty of this kind of case. I think some of this is the second ever case of DOJ intervention on False Claims Act suit at a slaughter plant or about a slaughter plant. So that's nice. You know, we've now we've got that on the board, right? For the next one. But you know, it's a lot to put on to put on them to figure out what to do and how much to, you know, really engage in our arguments. So uh, you mentioned there there was another one and I, I think a lot of people are probably fairly familiar with with the Hallmark case, which was a long time ago, over 10 years ago. But there was also another one that you tried to get the DOJ to intervene and they didn't. Isn't that true? That's true. So 2008, Hallmark was a Humane Society investigation that, that ended up with a set of videos that showed a lot of abuse as well as um, a downer cow going into the food supply. In 2012, we did an investigation of Central Valley Meat, which is in the news these days, again, because of its COVID outbreaks. The evidence, I would argue that the evidence in that case was just as bad from an animal handling point of view as the Hallmark case, and including things like, you know, shooting the downers in the head with the captive bolt pistol, you know, not doing it effectively, waiting minutes to do it again, sometimes even a third time, and then standing on the nostrils of the cows to suffocate them. That kind of thing. We ended up putting together an argument, um, you know, a complaint, filing the complaint under the False Claims Act, and arguing, I want to say something like over a hundred violations that we argued we was in our video, and that there was no DOJ intervention then. And I think that really was 
the cause was really the agency not being particularly interested. That case was interesting too because they they shut down the slaughter plant while they were evaluating what was going on and what her allegations were temporarily. And then they did do some just outright enforcement of the HMSA where they have levels, like they have like non-compliance reports and notice of an intended enforcement, like those kinds of things. But they they picked four areas to enforce in that case, just straightforward HMSA enforcement, but they did not intervene. Um, they did not intervene in that. Is there any set of standards or even if there are internally anything that you're aware of that you, when you go to the DOJ, that you know that they apply these standards as to whether they're going to take a case or not? Or does it just from the outside seem kind of uh, toss the dice? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I I would just first say that it has nothing to do with how strong... And my, my impression here and elsewhere is that it has nothing to do with how strong the evidence is in terms of the animal treatment, right? So, you know, I've gone to prosecutors and state-level prosecutors with what I think is really egregious cruelty and just gotten no interest. So I, I don't think that's the factor in any way. What we had thought, what we had guessed was that the agency, by the agency, I mean the USDA agency here, FSIS, would be much more interested in food safety issues. Because, you know, that Hallmark case led to the largest beef recall in U.S. history. And it's, I think it really put undercover investigations on the map in a major way because it got major national media at the time. Absolutely. Um, and that was not something that was going on, you know, prior to that, even though investigations were happening before that. And I think the real wedge issue there was the food safety implications. So in the superior case, this lamb slaughter case, we made four arguments for why DOJ should intervene. One was that they should intervene on the halal slaughter compliance to the HMSA, um, you know, essentially human handling issues. Um, three was the um, fact that, I didn't even mention this yet, but the fact that the our video showed intentional avoidance of the metal detectors. So after the packaging is all done of the product, they're supposed to go through a metal detector to make sure there aren't things like metal shavings or bits of equipment or whatever in the product for food safety reasons. And they're just cutting corners and just lifting the boxes up and moving them. You know, that's what the the argument was. And then the other category was changing date labels. So, you know, you go to the store and it says like best buy this date or whatever. And they were just, they had a backup and they would just switch the labels um, in some cases, you know, over two to make them seem over two weeks fresher than they actually were. So my intuition at the time was that's going to be much more interesting than these humane handling issues, even though our, you know, priority obviously always is about what's happening to the animals. But it was very, I really have to give credit to the DOJ here. And it was very sort of encouraging in this case that they intervened on the two animal handling related arguments. Hmm. And not the others. Not the others. Interesting. That's really interesting. If the DOJ decides not to intervene, can you continue with your case? You can, but you're taking a, a significant financial risk by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get back to the matter at hand. Uh, that's a little history there. Your argument here was that because of all of these issues, it, it, it was really, it, it's really a contractual argument in a way that the defendant misrepresented itself to the federal government and secured these purchase contracts um, in violation of the False Claims Act. But as you mentioned, they only intervened on the two animal handling ones. So I assume the other two just 
didn't get pursued. And then it seems to me, at least from looking at the papers, that the case fairly quickly settled. Is that true? Uh, In law terms, yes, in the law timeline. Yes, I think it was fairly quick. The investigation took place in 2017 and the settlement happened in 2019. But yeah, I mean, I think there was significant, sincere attention being paid to this case and kind of figuring out how to resolve it. The settlement itself and the consent decree are both publicly available. They're on you know, our website at animaloutlook.org. You can just Google it too. I mean, this case was covered in the New York Times when the investigation first came out. There's some other coverage of the of the settlement and resolution. But yes, I think essentially you need to apply some creative legal thinking in order to resolve this because it was a novel situation. You know, I was surprised that they were even really willing to come to the table because of the kind of political sensitivity of this religious slaughter first amendment situation. So the way that they ended up resolving that was to basically say in this consent decree that the facility, if they're going to say that they're halal, have to maintain an active halal certification, which which sounds like, okay, weren't they already supposed to be doing that? But that's pretty groundbreaking because it really, you know, shows that our federal government is, is you know, affirmatively taking that step and making that happen. And that's not something that they normally do. I don't see, I don't know of any other case where that, where that was the case. And so one of the things they had to do was was comply with the law. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, were there other provisions? Oh, well, all right. So there was a settlement agreement. And you ha- did you have to sign off on that? What is your role then? Right. So as a relator, you're kind of in the driver's seat, even though, you know, DOJ is really carrying the day. So the idea was we're resolving all the claims, you know, the the sort of standard settlement agreement side of things. And there was some money. The more interesting part of it, I think, was this consent decree because that's where the kind of creative legal thinking came into it. So they had to create a whole written humane handling and slaughter compliance program. And that includes hiring of somebody whose job it is to be a humane handling coordinator. So somebody who actually is looking at ensuring compliance with the federal statutes here, the FMIA and the HMSA that we talked about. And then there's things like ensuring the testing of, uh, testing and effectiveness of the stunning devices. They also have to figure out how do we monitor signs of consciousness. And, and then, as I said, if they're going to be halal, they have to actually be certified. So it's not like they're stepping in and saying, oh, you know, we're going to police what these halal certifiers are doing. You know, it still maintains, obviously, the ritual bubble. It still maintains that kind of separation between this is one, you know, jurisdiction or area of law, if you want to think of that in the religious context. But it is very interesting that they kind of take that position that they're required to do this. And then there are there are fines, you know, if they don't comply. So it's a pretty strong resolution here. How is the consent decree enforced? They have this this oversight and reporting requirement. So this person who is, you know, now it's their job to oversee this and write this out. And you kind of glided over the damages issue, but if we are going to interest other lawyers in bringing these cases, I think we should at least revisit whether whether you uh, did you recover attorney's fees or did you participate in the damages and were you, well, I don't know whether you're allowed to say whether you were satisfied or not, but <laughs> did you think that the, the damages that were imposed were an appropriate amount? So I'll say 
I'll answer that in a little more broad way. So I'll say that, yes, there was money in this case. I think the potential for false claims act case, and we were able to get a portion of it. So I mentioned earlier that there is a range of what percentage the relator can recover. And that range shrinks, the, the overall you know, upper cap gets lower when DOJ intervenes. But then, of course, you have the trade-off of now you're right. you know, in a better position overall, I think, financially and otherwise. But the range depends to a large degree on how much you are engaged in the work of the case. So you asked earlier, like, you know, does DOJ then take it over and, and move on? They can. Like, that's that's certainly something that, they're, that they can do if they do that. The, my understanding from these False Claims Act attorneys who do this, you know, on a regular basis is that then you're likely to get the smaller side of the range in terms of your percentage. Now, because this was a settlement, obviously the number I think was chosen for the purposes of coming with to some kind of agreement, right? But the potential of these kinds of cases is that, you know, the, the government buys millions and millions of dollars worth of these products. So if you were to get into a situation where, you know, you're, you're really moving things forward and your, your focus is really on that financial recovery, I think the potential is huge for um, getting significant monetary recovery. Here, it was, it was not insubstantial. I mean, it was more than as animal lawyers were used to recovering. But I think, you know, and, and you cover it for the relator, there's also an attorney's fees component of things. But I think that the bigger point is there's a huge pie out there. And I think if you were to really think strategically about building on these cases and, and building on the foundation that, you know, we've just kind of piloted these cases, you could have a whole field that really is self-sustaining and, and pretty lucrative if, if uh, you know, it got all up and running the way that it could be. Oh, it's uh, like we can get rich and and save the world and save the animals. It sounds like a perfect solution. Are you like you have danced around the the figures, or, or are you reluctant to to talk about what the actual recovery was or the actual penalties were here? It's public information. It's two hundred thousand dollar total settlement. But I don't want that. I don't want people to put a stake in the ground on that number because uh, yeah. I because I have to just you know tell you that you can go on the USDA's website and look at how much money changes hands. Um, you know, cause these are huge industries and the, and the federal government is a huge, huge purchaser of these products. So the real difficulty here, the kind of problem to be solved is how do we get the information about when there are violations and about how to, you know, really map out a strategy and map out a plan that's going to be successful because I don't think, you know, we should be limiting our thinking in terms of is is the money there? The money is there. It's a question of can we actually build really strong cases? Well, it, the potential seems enormous. Um, and it just does seem here that Animal Outlook is in a particularly, well, in other organizations as well, HSUS would be in the same position, that because you can decide on where to do undercover investigations and what to do with the information that you gather when you when you do do them, you're in a particularly valuable position to to find the cases, to find the cases where the, the federal government, or as you pointed out, sometimes the state governments, if there are state false claims acts, are being defrauded and, and making these this option available. Do you expect to be doing more of this work? 
I hope so. I hope this is something that, as I said, kind of grows, including the movement, but also beyond the movement. You know, I know that there are really high, highly skilled, specialized attorneys in these fields. And those skills, if they're kind of aimed in the right direction and really applied, I think could really make these companies start taking animal handling issues seriously. Now, of course, there are ways to use False Claims Act concepts for violations outside of animal handling, right? But I think wrapping that into the mix could do a lot for animals and could do a lot for the level of seriousness that, you know, the animal treatment issues have and animal law has sort of in the broader field. That's where I see this as being you know, kind of a bigger potential. I will say, I don't think that the type of investigations that we do are necessarily the only way to get this kind of information. It's certainly a challenge to get that information. But, you know, you could you could have whistleblowers, you could have, you know, look at what's being done in other contexts under False Claims Act and who's getting this information. And there's animal advocates are not the only people who, you know, are kind of outraged by what's happening at slaughterhouses. You know, people all the way from, you know, we've had, we had a former USDA inspector look at this and, and really have a problem with the statements on the investigation itself. I mean, there are people of all roles, all walks of life that see what's going on at these places and have an issue with it. And I think it's, it's a question of connecting the right people with the right strategy to, you know, really start holding these corporations accountable and, making this issue more important, this issue of how these animals are being treated more important. Yeah, it just does seem like an e- enormous opportunity is here. And and as you point out, a lot of people are looking at slaughterhouses, though they're calling them meat plants, they are looking at them and, and taking a closer eye. And as soon as they do, they're going to see a lot of these kinds of violations. So there's a bright future here for lawyers in, in trying to stop some of these worst, worst abuses of animals. So thanks for bringing this case. Thanks for telling us about it. It's really, I, I'm so glad we, we stepped back, even though it was completed and revisited it because it's a really exciting case. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Cheryl for enlightening us about this case. I'm so glad we took a moment to revisit this case, even though it was already over. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Uh, You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. And consider giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, which really makes a huge difference in people's ability to find the podcast. Those reviews are important. And of course, if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Thanks so much for tuning in. And, you know, remember to be safe, wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands, and sit home and listen to podcasts. What more would you want?